0: Welcome back to school, uh, your first day of classes. I'm sure some of you are maybe a little overwhelmed. Some of you are feeling great because you probably had like a 10 a.m. ceramics class. So, uh, (laughs) sorry. Uh, Anyways, I'm glad, that's it, is what I was saying. Uh, I'm glad you could be with us tonight uh, for the first large group of the semester. We don't already know, this semester we're doing a sermon series in the Psalms uh, that's called Songs That Shape Us. Uh, I've I've called it that because that's really what the book of Psalms is. It's uh, it's a book of songs. It's it's uh, even though in ancient or sorry, even though in like modern times, mostly what we do with the Psalms is we either pray them or we read them or someone teaches about them, like I'm about to do. Uh, but the reality is that when the Psalms were written and compiled, they were meant to be prayed. Or, sorry, they were meant to be sung rather than prayed or read out loud. Uh, They were originally composed to be the hymn book of the Israelite people. And because of that, these psalms are not just prayers or pretty theological poems, they're songs. And they're songs that are meant to shape our hearts, uh, meant to shape those who sing them. And so, as we study them, we're going to try and do a very similar thing. We're going to open them up, and be shaped, up, shaped by them in a similar manner. Uh, we want these words that are on this, in this Bible to shape our likes and our dislikes, our heroes and our villains, whatever we conceive to be the good life and the bad life, um, our fears and our failures. We want all of those things to be filtered through the lens of the Psalms of these words. And as we begin our series, uh, tonight's psalm is actually particularly appropriate, Psalm 1, uh, because it's going to attempt to shape our love for the psalms themselves. Uh, it's going to try to shape our love for all of Scripture. Uh, so let's read Psalm 1. Uh, this, is, yeah, this is from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Uh, Dear God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Um, In the outset of the 1999 movie, The Matrix, and I realized that as I say this, Some of you were not born yet when this movie came out. And so I say, I do this illustration with fear and trembling, but here it is. Anyways, uh, Neo, the protagonist, is told that he is living inside a prison that you cannot smell, taste, or touch. It's a prison of his mind. Uh, You actually might recognize what comes next in the scene by a popular meme that has grown from uh, this scene, but uh, a man named Morpheus... He holds out these two pills to him and he's, uh, Neo is offered a blue pill if he wants to remain enslaved or a red pill if he, uh, that if he takes it, he will actually be able to see the matrix and break free from the slavery that he is, that he is found in and all of humanity is bound up in. The real crux of this scene, interestingly, is not necessarily him taking it, but the moment before he takes it he has no idea what's going to happen if he takes this red pill, right? He, he, uh, the man who makes the offer to him actually says that if he does take it, he describes what will happen as uh, falling, falling down the Wonderland rabbit hole. Like that's, I mean, that's what he's basically offering him. But the promise of freedom, this promise uh, that instead of emptiness, the emptiness he's felt his whole life, he will feel happiness. It's promised that he'll be free, not enslaved. And so with that promise alone and and the opportunity of that, Neo grabs the red pill and is willing to take whatever comes across with it. Well, tonight's psalm is something like that scene. Um, Not totally like that scene, but something like that scene. in the way that it presents us with two paths. Two paths by which we can encounter the psalms and, in fact, The entirety of scripture. One path is tread by the blessed in verse 1, and the other path is tread by the wicked in verse 4. And the difference between the two paths, the difference between these two people, the blessed and the wicked, according to verse 2, it's their posture towards God's law. That's it. That's the difference between these two people. The blessed person is one who delights in it, and the wicked is someone who scorns it. Like the red and blue pills in the matrix, this psalm functions really as a faithful doorkeeper for those who believe they belong in the congregation of the righteous, who believe that they belong in, in you know, uh, some sort of moral high ground, or, or maybe they belong with God, or who would tempt you to think that they are really Christians. Um, and yet, uh, it holds out that promise to them, but it requires a choice. The force is a choice. The promise to such a person is blessed happiness. It's you know, it's true freedom, but for one to find such freedom, to put in the language of the Psalms, there's a reality of worship that has to exist. There's a choice that you have to, to have to make for, for a believer to belong in the congregation of the righteous. Uh, that is essentially, this is the choice, God requires of us total and complete allegiance total and complete submission to him. That means, according to verse 4, one cannot be blessed without complete submission to God's word. And verse 6 makes the claim that God, not us, knows the righteous way. And of course, uh, here's, here's the issue with that. Some, uh, some of us in here, I'm sure, uh, even if we don't admit it to ourselves, maybe bristle at that notion a little bit. We bristle at it because it's difficult for us to stomach uh, that someone else we're, we're, we live in a culture that really just hates uh, submission like to any sort of authority. We hate authority structures. Um, we really, really don't like people to be able to just like tell us what to do and then blindly follow. Um, orders are usually met with questions, right? Why? Why do I have to do that? Why do you want me to do that? Um, we're very suspicious of authority. Um, in fact, I've sat across from a number of you who have told me as much that this is one of your problems with scripture. You've Confided in me that you find many of the teachings of the Bible to be archaic or even hateful, uh, from the sexual to the financial. Um, The Bible's ethical underpinnings are often at odds with our cultural moment. There's lots of stuff that the Bible says about how we should live our lives or what we should think or what we should do or who God is that we really just bristle under. And myself included. I mean, I feel that tension too. I don't want to be hateful or ignorant or rude or any other number of accusations lobbied against the church's teaching. And this isn't even to begin to talk about, right? The ways that even our culture says some things are wrong and yet we, and the Bible agrees with them and yet we persist in them, right? Racist comments or uh, looking at pornography. Um, Not everybody thinks that's wrong, but there are like secular groups out there that even believe that's wrong. Uh, cheating on tests, uh, lying to people, treating our bodies harshly uh, so that we can uh, look the right way to meet certain beauty standards, um, spending our time and money basically only on ourselves and being selfish and stingy, um, lying on things like reading reports <laughs> so that we say like, yeah, I read 100% of this book. And by 100%, I mean, I read the first page and the last page and not really anything in between. Um, maybe your professor is fine with that, but Uh, fudging the numbers, all these things that we do that God might require us to think differently about. It seems like the cost of leaving those behind, maybe that would be a bad grade or it would be not getting the boyfriend or girlfriend you want or I don't know what it is for you. This thing that you say uh, that deep inside your heart, you're like, I couldn't believe that because if I did, it would cost me too much, right? The cost seems to be so great to be among the righteous, and the and the question is, how do we give a, give up all these things that we desire? How do we how do we conform our lives to this? And and why would we? Um, it would have to be worth it, right? It would have to be worth it. If 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 this psalm is going to be true, right? If this psalm's you know claim that to be under God's authority is the good life is going to be true, then it have it would have to be worth it. And that's exactly what this psalm is going to claim. Uh, that's what it's going to teach us tonight. Uh, it's going to answer this question, how can this cost our freedom to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, uh, and our own love for sins that seem to bring us happiness? How can this cost be worth giving up everything for the sake of knowing and loving God? Uh, for our for the remaining time, for all what we're going to do tonight, uh, we'll first look at what we stand to gain, right? Um, I said it's going to have to be worth it. We'll look at what we stand to gain that this psalm claims, and then... Uh, We'll finish up with uh, what we stand to lose um, if we disregard God's authority and uh, refuse to worship him. So let's start with what we stand to gain. Start with that. Um, this psalm mentions at least three things that we stand to gain uh, if we are under submission to God. Uh, first, it says that a life lived in submission to God is a happy one. Look at verse one. Again, can work first one with me. It describes a blessed ideal man. Now that word blessed, that word blessed, uh, can actually be translated as happy. Uh, it's translated that way because it's used that way in First 1 Kings 10.8 uh, in describing like the happiness of Solomon's kingdom, uh, a queen that is there. It goes like, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, blessed are these people. And what she means by that is that they're happy, that they're prosperous. Uh, and, and this happiness is further cemented by verse 2. Look at that. Look at, look at verse 2. It says, This kind of happy person delights in the law of the Lord. Uh, delight and happiness uh, are what accompany submission to God. And it's worth noting that the word law here, um, we hear law and we think of usually like a legal code, um, but uh, that's the Hebrew word Torah, or Torah, which simply means instruction. That's all it means is that it's God's instruction. And so usually... Uh, if you were a Hebrew in ancient Israel, you, when you talked about God's instruction, you were talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Um, but it can also mean anything that God has instructed, which includes not just his legal code, right, but also um, it's the story of the Exodus. It's how good God is and merciful he is. And it's him revealing to his people that he is committed to them, that he loves them, that he's merciful to them that he abounds in steadfast love. Um, these are also part of uh, what it means to know God's law. Um, it's the revelation of God that, it's this revelation of God. This revelation of God as this loving, caring, good God who is in control and caring and will rescue his people out of slavery. It is this, this God, this revelation of him, that the psalmist depicts a man meditating on day and night. This is what gives him happiness. And um, that makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, It makes sense that if you meditate on who God is as this loving, caring God who, um, you know, the psalmist doesn't even know this, but who will actually die uh, for your sins, who will actually come and live among us, come from a state where he is in perfect and complete control, and be subject to people who will kill him, uh, this God, thinking about him, is supposed to uh, be delighting. Um, And it's worth noting also that meditation on this fact, it's not, uh, we tend to think of meditation as like uh, the Eastern practice of clearing your mind, of like not thinking of things, of being completely uh, stoic. But this form of meditation, you'll notice, is actually filling one's head. Um, It's actually abounding and overflowing with the thoughts of God's goodness. This is what he meditates on day and night. This is what he thinks about constantly, is how good God is to him. Uh, So, yeah, this is someone who knows God intimately, and because this is so, he submits as a happy man. Uh, The second thing that this psalm tells us uh, about living a life in submission to God is that it's a high-yielding one. A high yielding one, in addition to a happy one. Look with me at verse three. Um, by the way, high yielding—that's—I'm uh, going with like fruitfulness, but I want to keep with the H's. So we got happy and high yielding. Uh, the psalmist employs the the simile of a tree to describe the blessed man's life. Right, verse three. In an otherwise dry climate, you know, uh, this is the Middle East here. Um, in an otherwise dry climate, uh, a tree would need to be. Planted near some sort of water source Its roots need water to live And so This tree is depicted as thriving Because it's rooted in its source of life It's planted by streams of water And because the tree is abounding in life It produces fruit This fruit uh, th- This point shouldn't be missed That it's, that it's the fruit that it, that it bears um, The high yielding nature of the tree It's not in the form of more water right? Think about a tree. It doesn't soak up water and then produce water, right? It soaks up water for itself to give fruit. So the things that it produces, actually, it doesn't benefit from, right? It's actually the, toward the benefit of others that a tree exists. Um, this is the kind of person, uh, a high-yielding person that uh, that is in submission to God's law, um, being loved by God, Here's the reality, that being loved by God truly and deeply drives us to love other people. That soaking up that water, soaking up that life, embracing God's love for us, um, actually extends us to love other people. That grace goes somewhere, um, as Francis Chan would put it. When we know that the God of the universe has met our deepest needs... Uh, for acceptance and significance, for status and approval, for the things that we really, really deep down want, and we tend to actually use other people to get, right? Whether we're stepping on other people or we're using boyfriend or girlfriend to tell us that we're enough, whatever it is that we do to get that stuff from people or things, instead we can relinquish our tight grip on that stuff and instead accept what our heart really wants, which is God's love, God's acceptance, Significance that he gives us because he cares about us, approval from the one person who actually matters. When we know that that God of the universe has met our deepest needs, uh, other people cease to be obstacles. So long as you don't worship God, so long as uh, your gaze is fixed on the horizontal things of this world, you, everybody who takes significance from you or takes acceptance from you or takes anything from you they become an obstacle to your happiness the only way that that stops is if you stop meeting other people to be like to be those things to be your significance to be enough for you and instead you can actually start to love them selflessly uh, caringly according to galatians 5 uh, when we find ourselves in submission to god drawing on him for life we become people who produce this kind of fruit Love, joy, patience, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the attributes that are life-giving to possess, right? They they do something for us to be loving and to be gentle and to have self-control. They're good for us, but actually they benefit other people far more than they benefit us, right? To be under your own control, to have self-control is actually going to be far more beneficial to the person next to you than it will be to you. Um, This is the kind of fruit a life uh, that is in submission to God. And lastly, uh, the third thing that this psalm tells us about a life lived in submission to God is this. It's a haven. So uh, in addition to being happy and high-yielding, it's a haven. What's up, Brandon? My man. Um, So it's happy and high-yielding. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. The psalmist tells us that God knows the way of the righteous. This knowing is more than just being informed, right? It's not that God, like, is aware of the the whereabouts of righteous people. Um, yes, that is true, but this knowing is more than that. It's it's caring, right? The way that you talk about knowing a family member or a friend, uh, th- this is how you say that you know them. You know their ways. You care for them. You identify with them and are invested in their welfare. And as much as many of us may Uh, try to ignore this or made uncomfortable, but this psalmist is reiterating a claim that Jesus himself is going to make in Acts 1, that he's so invested in his people that one day he's going to come back and judge the people who have been uh, cruel to them, who have sinned against them, that he will not leave uh, unrighteousness unpunished. Um, That might make some of us uncomfortable. That might, um, when we start to think about hell, when we start to think about um, God punishing people, a lot of us start to feel very un- uneasy. I thought God was supposed to be loving, um, but can I say this? For those people who have been deeply hurt and wounded in this life by other people's sin, um, by spiritual, mental, physical, and verbal abuse, this psalm is like drinking water for the first time, um, because it's it's telling us that God is not going to forget your wounds. Um, God is not going to forget war or food shortages at the hands of corrupt governments. He's not going to forget sexual harassment or assault. He will not forget the ways that you have been hurt, and he will judge them and make it right. And that might seem mean to the people who have done those things, but God is good and just, and he will not leave unjust people unpunished. So... Uh, That means that you don't have to walk—this is the liberating part of this. This is why this man is so happy. Um, This is why this man is so um, fruit-bearing and and is so secure. It means this. You don't have to walk around with the shame and the guilt and the anger and, you know, the fear and the vengeance that sin will breed in your life. Other people's sin causes us to, in so many ways, lash out— to think about uh, how to react against it, to get more for ourselves, to make our own spot on earth secure. And instead, what this psalm is saying is God will take care of that, that you don't have to do it, that God Almighty will do it for you. Uh, Maybe not right now, but one day. Uh, So God will address it for you. He's not far off. Uh, So life under God's authority means this, that uh, life is a happy, high-yielding haven. But let's be honest, right? It doesn't always feel that way, does it? For any of us who have been doing this for a while, uh, you may have either observed in your friends who are Christians or have felt it yourself that it doesn't really feel uh, like life is just some happy, high-yielding haven. The reality is that we also stand to lose a great deal, right? I I started this by saying that you have to make a choice here. And that, that choice, just like you know, the, uh, picking a pill or whatever, is going to cost you something. It It's going to take you down a road that you're going to have to walk. And uh, you don't always know where that's going to lead. The reality is that God is still in control, that you don't know what it's going to look like for you to be in this uh, happy, high-yielding haven. Uh, how we experience these things, um, even though it might feel like uh, this doesn't seem very secure to me. This doesn't seem like everything's going well for me. Uh, part of what it means to submit is to say that, like, it doesn't feel that way, but that doesn't mean that it's not. Uh, let me explain it like this. So um, I've, I have mentioned this last semester, uh, this story, so I won't go too deep into it, but uh, there's a book called The Silver, Ch- Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis, and in it there's this character named Jill, who gets transported to Narnia, which is like a you know, faraway place in another realm. And while she's there, um, she finds herself dying of thirst and she hears like rushing water through a forest and she starts running after the water to see where it is. But when she gets to the clearing and comes to the water, she notices that there's a huge lion there. She says 10 times bigger than like an actual lion or anything that you've ever seen. And uh, the lion tells her to come and drink the water. And she says, well, you know, do you promise me that you won't eat me if I come? And he goes, nope. I make no such promise, but you should come over here. And she's like, this is crazy. No, I'm going to go to another stream. And he just says, like, there isn't another stream. It's either right here or not at all. And the reality is she's feeling the same thing that, uh, that life uh, pushes us into in these moments, is that uh, we know where life can be found, right? Um, we know that the happy, high-yielding life is found in not crushing other people, not crushing ourselves, and knowing God and being loved by Him. And yet, and yet, there's something about it that says, yeah, but then I don't have control. And I don't know what God is going to ask of me. I don't know what He'll need from me. I don't know where it'll take me if I yielded control. Um, She's stuck. Well, here's how the lion gets her unstuck. He reminds her again and again that she is very thirsty, right? He, uh, he, says, he says, you know, you're going to die of thirst. And she says, well, maybe. And she's like all the time. She's inching a little closer to the lion. And he says, he just keeps reminding her, you'll die of thirst uh, if you don't come. And he keeps reminding her that, uh, that the stream is the only source of life for her, and this psalmist does the same. Uh, he takes a cue from C.S. Lewis. Sorry, it's actually the other way around. Uh, the psalmist does the same thing as, uh, as this lion. He knows the dilemma. He knows that this is our heart's dilemma, right? Uh, the psalmist that's penning this knows that we, as we hear this, this beckoning to submit to God, that there's some part of us that says, yeah, but like that would cost me friends or girlfriend or I don't know what it would be for you. Um, and I don't know if I can do that. So he's going to help to expose our thirst, right? He's going to tell us uh, what we're missing out on uh, if we do, if we stay where we are. What happens to us? Look with me at verse four. Remember how I mentioned that the tree of verse three was in an arid climate, uh, but survived by being rooted in a source of life, right? Well, here in verse four we have the opposite picture. Chaff is a weed that used to grow in the ancient world; uh, still does, actually. Um, where it would grow up alongside wheat, and it looks exactly the same while it 's young, but then in its maturity it 's actually much lighter than wheat. so what would happen is in order to harvest your wheat while it had weeds up inside of it, you'd wait till it grow to full maturity, then you'd chop it and you'd cut it off, cut it down, and then you'd throw it up in the air, and the wind would actually carry chaff away, um, and your wheat would fall back down uh, to the ground. Uh, When, uh, oh sorry, the picture in verse 4 is of this process, this chaff that's been cut off from its life source, right, that's been harvested, thrown up in the air, and is blown away. Um, It's been cut out from the fertile soil that it was once in. The implication is clear. When we decide to go our own way, this is what it costs us. We have to seek out our happiness in some other way, Um, and the reality is that those are, those ways are all dry springs. The promise all these other things in life, right? The things that you think will give you the good life. I don't know what it is for you. Everybody, it's a little different. There's something that you think, man, if only I could be X, if only I could have X, and if only I could do Y or Z, I would be enough, everything, my life would be good. There's something about life for you that that would be. And all sin is actually just, you know, the promises of that stuff and it not delivering. Um, you looking for that in other things besides God. They, those things, they're all promising life, and they cannot deliver. They cannot deliver. Um, a boyfriend or girlfriend, a new job, good grades, sex, all of those things, as good as they might be, are not the greatest thing. And so as we live our lives and subject to those things, we end up uh, ending up like chaff, because here's what happens. When you throw chaff in the air, it blows, right? He's saying it's rootless, it has no foundation. It's blown about any which way. That's what you are when you chase after these other things. If you want approval, then you'll do whatever you have to do to get approval. Um, there's this scene in the office. I think I've mentioned this too before, but there's this scene in the office where Andy um, is, or sorry, Andy Bernard uh, is uh, pouring coffee, and the boss, this new boss, comes in. He's played by Will Ferrell, and. The boss thinks, like, Andy is the funny guy of the office. And so he says, like, hey, funny guy, like, tell me a joke or, like, whatever. And Andy starts to, like, try and tell him a joke, but he's not laughing. He's like, this isn't funny. And Andy realizes that the only way that he's going to get this guy to laugh is if he starts to, like, commit bodily injury to himself. And so he takes a boiling hot pot of coffee and pours it down his pants, right? The boss erupts in laughter and walks out, and Andy now... Um, he has got what he wanted, right? He's gotten the boss's approval, but at what cost? Uh, I guess boiling pants, you know, like that's that's what he's that's what it cost him, right? He's being blown about by whatever by whatever catches his attention. When we make other things, now that's a TV show. I get it, but we do this in all sorts of ways in real life, right? We cast our cares, we cast our worries, we cast whatever on other people, and then we just do whatever we have to do to get them to approve of us or to get. Significance or status, whatever those things are, and we give our lives to that stuff, and it's never going to be enough. You just spend your life blowing in the wind. They can't deliver. So, this should be a no brainer uh, to submit to Him and everything, then, right? Should be a no brainer to submit to God, right? Okay. Oh, Nick, that makes total sense. Okay. I don't want to be a person who's just blowing around, so, okay. Why doesn't it always, the, the reality is it doesn't always still feel that way, right? It's still, um, it's hard. Um, you know, it, God, uh, the lion, in that, that picture that I painted earlier, um, we still don't know what he's going to do to us. Um, we worry about those things uh, because happiness isn't always getting what we want. And we know that if we come to God and we submit to him, we might not, get what we want. We might actually have to start to fight our own desires. We might have to say, whatever I want may not be good for me. Um, the, uh, to think about these things, um, there's a missionary uh, named Jim Elliott. You may have heard of him. Uh, he, This is about 70 years ago. Uh, he took a call to go to Ecuador and actually minister to the Irani people. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right the Irani people of Ecuador. Uh, It's an indigenous community that lived uh, in the Amazon and were completely unreached people group. And they would actually kill uh, basically anybody who ever came in contact with them. And so people more or less left them alone. But um, Jim was actually stateside and was just talking to somebody and they mentioned something about this group. They had actually worked in Ecuador for a little while in Quito and they just casually mentioned that there was this group that would kill people if anybody's ever, like anybody who's ever spoken to them or seen them has actually just ended up dying. And he, God put this burden on his heart that he should go and minister to these people. Uh, and so they actually ended up um, this big elaborate plan. Uh, they would take a, a plane and would drop like supplies, like gifts, so that the people knew that they came in peace. Would actually like skim the bottom of the rainforest and like drop gifts in where they thought these people lived. And they would accept it, and actually, after a little while, they started giving gifts back. Um, They started, like, when they would drop the stuff, they would uh, have, like, a tethered line, and the people, uh, the Sorani people, would actually put stuff in that they wanted the pilot to have. Um, Oh, yeah. And so uh, it was actually working, and so they moved um, into the area, and they started actually making contact with these people, um, the first people to ever not just be instantaneously killed uh, by this group. Uh, And Jim Elliott on the, uh, well, a few nights before they were going to make contact, like solid rooted, like face-to-face contact with the people, he wrote in his journal this, uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. Um, Jim Elliot ended up being uh, martyred uh, by those uh, by the Iranian people. Um, actually, uh, he and four other uh, missionaries all were speared to death on the beach, and uh, we have that story in, in his uh, and his quote that quote from his uh, journal. Um, because of it, uh, they've actually since gone and. Uh, so you know they've gone and actually uh, reached that people group, and his wife actually was responsible for many of them coming to faith. She came and like forgave them and loved them. And beautiful story. You can look it up. There's books about it. Um, uh, we'll talk about that later. But the the reality is uh, Jim Elliot is hitting on something that's very true about life. Um, we think that we would be giving up a lot uh, and that we could stand to lose a lot, but here's the reality: any Giving up that you do, right? To come closer to the lion, to come closer to the stream, to say, "Okay, God, your authority is what I'm going to listen to. Um, I love this particular sin. I love to do this, but I, I'm going to fight it. I'm not going to do that anymore. I love, you know, I want my friends' approval and their respect, but I'm willing to lose it for you. Um, you do, uh, you do lose something there, right? You do lose your friend's respect." But um, you can't keep it ultimately, right? That's the, the image of the chaff, right? If we recognize what that longing in us actually is, is that it's a blowing of the chaff, maybe we can actually realize that we're not going ab- to be able to keep that. Not forever. And so uh, we can lose the things that we cannot keep and gain the thing that we cannot lose. Uh, that, that's the reality here. Uh, the question is, and I, I'm coming to a close, how do we do that? Um, okay, Nick, yes, I'm on board. Everything that you've said so far, I, God's authority. And I even want to stop the sin that I do. And I want to stop, um, you know, uh, going after things that God doesn't want me to, to have. But I just, I just don't know how. I don't know how. Um, and in fact, Nick, you don't understand. Today, I, I failed at it even this afternoon or this morning or yesterday or whatever. And if you really knew what kind of a person I was, you wouldn't say that there's hope for me. God doesn't even want me to be under his authority. Let me say something to you. Um, this psalm, Psalm 1, the guy who wrote it doesn't, I uh, couldn't have fully comprehended this, but he's describing uh, the one person who's actually able to be in the righteous. Um, the reality is you can't. Um, this, this is describing you to some degree. It's, it's describing a, a person who uh, is in the righteous, who loves God and who submits to him. Um, but the reality is that none of us do this perfectly. Right? We all rebel in little ways, um, but there has been one who didn't. Um, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, is the epitome of this blessed man. He is the epitome of the one who was in complete and total subjection to the Father and uh, was given over for it, and who, bared, who bore fruit, who bore real fruit that, that everyone benefited from except for himself, who poured himself out, who poured himself out for us. Um, if there's any sort of motivation to draw from this psalm about how we become this kind of righteous person, how we become, uh, this kind of happy, blessed life, hear this, that it comes from knowing that Jesus has done it for you, that he has given himself for you and and has become uh, a curse for you, that he has perished. The, you'll notice at the very end of the psalm that the wicked perish, um, Jesus has actually perished on your behalf so that this psalm can be true of you, that you can embrace it even on your worst day, that when it talks about the righteous and the blessed and the happy and the person that, whom delights in God's law and that God delights in him, that that can be you and that that can be you every day of your life, whether you're you know, soaring 10,000 feet in the air or 10,000 feet below, um, no matter how you feel about yourself, God cares for you. Let's pray. Uh, Lord um, thank you for this reality thank you for your kindness to us in